Eight is a very strong word. Many of us who are parents try and teach our children to be very careful with how they use the word eight. I hate bananas. I just do, always have. There's nothing I can do about it. But I'm careful with how I use that word for things that are not fruit, for people especially. Hate sounds distasteful coming out of someone's mouth. When we hear somebody say, I hate something, makes us stop and take notice. It can almost taste like lemon or vinegar on your tongue when you say it. And it certainly sounds that way when it comes out of the mouth of our Lord. Jesus, the Christ, the one who is our good shepherd, how do we hear that when our Lord says, you must hate your mother, your father, your wife, your husband, your children, even your own life, or you cannot be my disciple? It is certainly the case that hate here is not used without context. It is a contrast word. It is the opposite in this case of love. If you love one thing, then you must <clears throat> something the other. And in this particular case, in Greek or in Hebrew, the opposite of love was to hate. So if we're going to understand why Jesus uses this lemony, this vinegary word, we have to understand what Jesus is calling on us to love. And that is him. Jesus says there is a stark contrast that I am calling you to, following me or everything else. And there is no middle ground. There cannot be a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of bananas and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And we mix it all together so it makes sort of a salad where Jesus is the orange slices on top or the almond slivers. Jesus says, it is me or everything else, and that is the choice. You can put me, Jesus says, first, or you can choose to put everything else first, but you can't have both. Either I am first or work is first. School is first. Family is first. Soccer is first. The haves are first. Chinese food is first. Vacation is first. But that's impossible, isn't it? Who can do that? What would it look like for somebody to put Jesus before everything else? Wouldn't that make you look a little bit like a freak? If all of your attention was focused on Jesus and not on what everyone else in the world is focused on, food and housing and their employer and their family and their pets and their vacations, wouldn't you stand out like a sore thumb? Wouldn't you look a little bit weird? Or as a certain person that lives close to me might say, like a religious person. What would a person that does what Jesus says look like? 
Well, first of all, you have to ask, why would you want to follow this Jesus person at all? When I served a church in Houston, Texas, I was only three miles from Lakewood Baptist Church, one of the largest churches in the United States, 40,000 members. And some people in my church said, we should go and see why they are so big and what their church is about. So we went to a Saturday evening service and there were laser lights and bands and instruments and singing and large crowds, but no Jesus until the very end of the service when the pastor said, if anyone would like to give their life to Jesus, we welcome you to come forward. And Deborah turned and looked at me and said, who is this Jesus person? <laughs> we haven't heard anything about him up till this point. Why would we give our heart to him? Why would you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What is it for? What do you get out of it? Do you follow Jesus just to get some advice on how to live your life, to hopefully get a better job, to end up with a better family, to live in a better place? If that's the only reason why you follow Jesus, then giving everything up for that seems like too high a cost. Why would you follow Jesus to get a better job if that means you have to give up your job in order to follow Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you follow Jesus to have a better family if it means giving up your family? That doesn't make any sense. Now, these are not the reasons why Jesus calls us to follow him. He calls us to follow him because he alone can defeat death. He alone can bring us from this life into the life of the world that he is preparing for us, the world that is yet to come. The God who created this universe, which we then so messed up because of sin and that Satan so destroyed because of sin, God will recreate and bring us into that life, those of us who are following Jesus. That is the stake. In Jesus, there is forgiveness and righteousness with God. Everything we try and do to make ourselves right with God and with our neighbors and with our friends fails. But Jesus says, those who come to me, I will make right. I will declare clean. I will give peace to. That is the discipleship which Jesus is calling us. It's why we follow him. But all that does is get us back to the initial question. Can we? If it's Jesus or all these other things, who can make that choice? Who is ready to give up everything and hate even their own mother and father and wife and husband and children in order to have eternal life and freedom from sin? Well, did you think it was going to be that easy? Did you think destroying death was going to be simple? Did you think like the internet promises that there's one weird trick you can follow and suddenly all of your guilt goes away? That if you follow these three steps, suddenly eternal life is yours? In the words of Martin Luther in the famous Luther movie from last decade, did you really think there wouldn't be a cost? 
And if the cost is too much, maybe you better cut a deal. And that's what this gospel text is about. Take the deal. Take the deal. Make the bargain. Sue for peace. That's what Jesus is trying to confront you with. There is no other option. There is no door B. There is only Christ and the deal that he is laying before the entire world each and every time his gospel is proclaimed. Now, when I was in college, like you guys, one of my favorite things to do in the evening, if it had been a very stressful day, was to go down to our lounge at the University of Waterloo at Conor Grable College and watch Law and Order. Law and Order is one of those things that's been on that long that even though I'm going to be 50 in December, it was just like in season five or something when I was in university. And in the original first few seasons of the original Law and Order, Stephen Hill played this gruff district attorney named Adam Schiff. And Michael Moriarty, who's now Canadian, played his assistant DA, Ben Stone. And in almost every episode, there would be a point where Ben would be sitting with the district attorney in his office, and they'd look at all of the evidence for the case, and they'd look at what they were going to trial with, and whether they could convict this criminal or not in front of a jury, and Adam Schiff would just shake his head and say, cut a deal. We're never going to prove this case. We're never going to get the jury on our side. Just cut a deal. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, if you put it that way, Jesus, I'm not sure I can be your disciple. So count the cost. Figure out if you can build the tower or not. Check out your army. Decide if you can defeat the king coming against you. Take the loan. Sue for peace. Cut a deal. This is the heart of Christianity, brothers and sisters. This is what this is all about. This is what our religion, our faith is all about. It's that God cuts a deal with us in Christ. He says, here are the options. You say you want to follow me. You think that somehow you can lower the law and God's expectations to a level that you can keep them. Each time we think we can do that, God says, I expect more. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, anyone who's even looked at somebody with lust in their heart has committed adultery with them. You have heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, anyone who even looks at their brother with anger in their heart has murdered them. Each and every time we think we can build the tower, each time we think our army is big enough, we find that the tower is more expensive than we thought, and the army coming against us is bigger than we expected. Sue for peace. Cut a deal. The same Jesus 
who was cutting the deal with you turned his back on his mother and his brothers and his sisters, on the idea of marrying, on the idea of having a family. He set that all aside. He even hated his own life to the point of being willing to bear his cross to Golgotha and die on that cross for us. He didn't deserve that death, but he hated his life because he loved your life more. He hated his life so that your life could be an eternal one. We can't build the tower. We can't win the war. We don't have the funds. We do not have the troops. Take the loan, lay down your arms, cut a deal. Accept his terms of peace now because they are simple. Trust that Jesus has made peace with the Father for you. Trust that his blood shed on that cross was not just in general for the world, but for you. Believe it when Jesus says to you that your sins are forgiven. Believe it when he comes and announces to you that you are no longer enemies of God, but are in fact his dearly beloved sons and daughters. And then go out the doors of this church with that identity. Go out the doors of this church realizing that you've taken the deal of your life. The tower was built by Christ. The army was defeated by Christ. There is now peace with God through Christ because you are his disciples. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.